Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from the Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, Start Spreading the News, where we discuss the importance of evangelism. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. We're going to form our thoughts this morning around 1 Peter 2, uh, 11 and 12. So I'll give you a moment to, to turn there in your Bibles this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's going to be on the screens behind me. And if you don't have a Bible at all, or at least one that you can understand, come see me afterwards. I'd love to put one in your hands before you leave this morning. So 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The early church, the first century church, the church through the first couple of centuries, was a persecuted minority in Rome. You could be killed for being a Christian. Christians had quite the PR problem in the first century. They were understood to be cannibalistic, incestuous, and atheistic. Now you might think, that is not the Christianity that I know. That is not the Christianity that I practice. How on earth did they get this reputation? But they were rumored to be cannibals because they spoke of eating the body of their Lord and drinking his blood in a regular practice we know as communion. If they were cannibals, then so are we. They were understood to be incestuous because they greeted their brothers and sisters with a holy kiss and even married them and were together with them at something called the Love Feast, which we have luckily rebranded into something like uh, potluck, which sounds a little less confusing. Uh, you know, in, in terms of sort of spirituality, I am married to my sister Sarah and have children with her, though we are not genetically related. I am a very proud only child, but she is my sister in the Lord. And they were considered atheists because they rejected the Roman gods. They, they would not worship their gods. And so since the Romans did not understand this whole like monotheism thing, it was a charge of atheism that would be brought against Christians because they would not bow to any of the state-recognized deities. And so Christians were a persecuted and a downtrodden group of people. There were these rumors swirling around about this new sort of uh, religion, these Jesus followers, their faith, this thing that they had centered their lives around completely was illegal, essentially, and the state was free to kill them for it. In fact, uh, John Mark Homer retells one such story. And he, reta- he retells that story so well that rather than quote it at length for you this morning or retell it myself, I'm just going to let him tell it. And so we're going to watch this video real quick. Great ones of the way. Her name was Perpetua. Born in 182 AD to a wealthy family in Carthage or what is now Tunisia, Perpetua was one of many in the first century who became a Christiani in Latin or a Christian or Christ follower. 
when she was 22 years old, just after her marriage and the birth of her first child. The Roman emperor Septimius Severus made conversion to what people were just starting to call Christianity illegal. And a state-sanctioned genocide of Christians broke out across the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean world. It was bloody and lethal. Perpetua was arrested and put in jail, likely to make an example of a woman from a prominent family. All she had to do to go back to her husband and her infant child was just recant her claim that Jesus was Lord, pinch a little incense on the altar, and say instead, Caesar is Lord. That's it. Her father begged her to recant. He said, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. This is an honor-shame culture. You are bringing shame on our family. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Can you imagine the decision? But she just kept saying over and over to the Roman magistrate, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. In prison, she had a vision in the middle of the night. In it, there was a ladder reaching up to heaven with a dragon guarding the base. She moved past the dragon and up the ladder and reached the top, and there was this beautiful, massive garden and at the center of the garden was a tall, gray-haired man dressed like a shepherd, surrounded by thousands of men and women and children dressed in white. He gave her a piece of cheese, which was sweet to her mouth, and he said, welcome, my child. She woke up and realized that she was going to die, but from that moment on, she was full of peace. The Acts of the Christian Martyrs, a third century writing, tells her story like this. The day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully, as though they were going to heaven with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than with fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step. She began to sing a psalm. She screamed as she was struck on the bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and she guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman, feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Perpetua made the ultimate choice, not between life and death, between allegiance to Jesus and allegiance to what Jesus called the world which goes by many names down through history. These Christians, as you can see, were willing to die for Jesus. There was nothing more worthy of their lives than him. Truly, as the passage we read says, they were foreigners and exiles. This world, it was not their home. It did not accept them. And yet they bore witness of the resurrected Christ to the world for the good of the world. Regardless of your view of what is true about God, how could you not observe the life of Perpetua and wonder, what is really going on here? And so Christians, a sort of hated minority, a persecuted minority, they didn't continue that way. They slowly 
picked up steam. Robert Louis Wilkin, uh, professor of history of the uh, of history at the University of Virginia, says this about the growth of the church in the first three centuries. At the end of the first century, there were fewer than ten thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. The population at the time numbered some sixty million, which meant that Christians made up one hundredth of one percent, or 0.017% according to the figures of a contemporary sociologist. By the year 200, the number may have increased to a little more than 200,000, still a tiny minority, under 1%, 0.36%. By the year 250, however, the number had risen to more than a million, almost 2% of the population. The most striking figure, however, comes two generations later, by the year 300, Christians made up 10% of the population, approximately 6 million people. Do you understand? By the year 300, Christianity made up 10% of the population. One in 10 people in the Roman Empire was Christian. Now you might think, yeah, it was slow though. In, in the first century, a little fewer than 10,000. But you have to remember in Acts 1.15, it tells us right after Jesus' ascension, there are 120 people in the upper room, 120 people or so. So if this church was 120 today, we would be so thrilled, so impressed, right? If you told me that in 65 years that as a 100-year-old man, I would visit the table in a new building, surely, and there would be 10,000 members, I would be stunned. And then if you told me that this thing we created in about 260 years would be 600 million people strong and 10% of the population, I would probably fall over in such disbelief. But that is the Christian story. A persecuted minority. People saw Christians murdered. People saw Christians tortured. They saw them beheaded, used as human torches for the emperor's garden parties. People saw them crucified, fed to the beasts in the Colosseum. And yet people said, I must have what these people have. I have to have it. It doesn't matter what it'll cost me. I think it was Tertullian who said, and if you've been around the church, I'm willing to bet you've heard this repeated many times. I hope you have at least. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The thing that made Christianity appealing wasn't its relevancy and synthesis with the culture. No, the thing that made Christianity appealing was what made it different from the culture. If the Christians would have been willing to pinch a little incense at the altar of the gods, pinch a little incense to the emperor, they would not have been killed. But would they have been Christian? Would their witness have been compelling? Would a watching world have thought, wow, I can add Jesus to my curio cabinet of gods, just one in a collection of many? That is so compelling. No. No, they would not. A Jesus that doesn't change your life isn't compelling to a watching world. A Jesus that you don't really follow doesn't interest anyone. That kind of Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And that kind of discipleship bears no resemblance to what Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But the early Christians, they actually did that. They did take up their cross. 
they did follow Jesus. And it caused them to not only be willing and ready to die, but to be willing to live radically different lives as well. Tim Keller, in that booklet that I recommended to you last week, and I highly recommend to you again this week, How to Reach the West Again, he, he refers to Larry Hurtado's book, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christi- Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World, which I have not yet read, but it is on my Christmas list, and I hope to read it next year. But Hurtado points out five elements of the early church's social vision and its distinctiveness and how, and how the church grew and thrived in spite of these distinctives and the violent opposition to them. These are the five distinctives. The first, the early church was multiracial and multiethnic. Previously, your religion was predetermined by your race and your birthplace because races and places had their own gods. You didn't choose gods. That was predetermined for you by birth. And what happens when, when this is how your religion is determined is that your religion is homogenous. All the adherents to your religion look the same, right? But Christianity had the audacity to believe that there was only one God and that he was in fact the true God and that everyone, regardless of who, what family you were born into or where you lived, should believe in him. Keller comments this about it. He says, that meant your faith was not only independent of your race, but it was more fundamental. It gave you a bond with all other Christians that was deeper than any other bond. When a person of any race or culture put their faith in Christ, it gave them a new perspective on their inherited culture and a new multiracial, multiethnic community, the first one formed by religion. Secondly, the second Christian distinctive social vision in the first century The early church was highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. In the first century, you were to care for only your own poor and needy, but not all the poor and needy. This sentiment, it wasn't left in the first century. You probably have heard people say things like that about maybe our country today. Uh, Keller brings to mind the Emperor Julian's letter against the Christians that he had written, in which he commented on this as a negative when he said that Christians were caring not only for their own poor, but for ours, the Roman, the Roman poor as well. The audacity, right? Christians just making pagans look bad. By the way, the term pagan here in our passage earlier that we read, as well as me saying it, it's not derogatory. The people we're talking about would have understood themselves as pagan. They would have self-identified that way. But the church in the first century was committed to the poor and the marginalized. They were, they were committed to the good of their cities, to the welfare of all. They wanted none to go without third distinctive of the Christian social vision in the first century. They were non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgiveness. The early Christians were martyred in droves. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians were killed for their faith, and they still are in other places, by the way. But the Christians did not organize a plot for violent takeover. They did not seek out revenge When they were being slaughtered by the Romans, they were often on their knees praying for their persecutors. They remembered our Lord's command to turn the other cheek and pray for those who persecute you. And they lived it out quite publicly. The fourth distinctive thing about the Christian social vision in the early church is that they were strongly and practically against infanticide and abortion. 
Keller comments, Christians were dead set against both abortion and infanticide, but not merely in principle. They found and took infants who were thrown out to die or become harvested by slavers. The early church was pro-life, especially in the sense that they recognized no gradations of human value. In a tribalized, socially stratified shame and honor culture, that was shocking. In that culture, first century Roman culture, it was no big deal, especially if you had a girl and you wanted a boy because boys were heirs. If that happened, it was no big deal to just throw them out, to discard them, set them at the edge of the forest and let them die of exposure. Christians absolutely saw all humans as made in God's image and of value and not only disagreed with the practice, but saved the lives of these children, would go and get them and bring them into their own families. Lastly, the fifth distinctive of the Christian social vision in the first century was that they were revolutionizing the sex ethic. Keller again here commenting on this. In the Roman world, sex was merely an appetite. Its purpose was to serve the social order. Married women could not have sex with anyone but their husbands, but men, even married ones, could have sex with any male or female they wanted, as long as it was with someone of less honor and class, someone lower on the social ladder. Christianity's revolutionary teaching detached sex and marriage from the social order and connected it to the cosmic, to God's saving love and redemption. God gave himself to us by going to the cross and we must respond by giving ourselves utterly and exclusively to him and no other God. The saving love brought about an astonishing union between two radically different beings, God and humanity. Therefore, sex was no longer for self-gratification, but for giving one's whole life in a consensual marriage covenant that fostered deep unity across the difference of male and female and combined their non-reproducible excellencies. This was a high, attractive vision of the character of sex. And listen to this. It took enormous power away from men and the upper classes. Christianity was immensely attractive to women who saw it as an equalizing and empowering religion. Do you hear that? It was equalizing and empowering for women who were on the margins, not because of a lack of parameters on sex, but quite the opposite, because the parameters were good. It was revolutionizing. It was changing the culture and the lives of the marginalized and also bringing goodness into the life of those with the upper hand in society. Those marriages were surely more fulfilling than what they were before they were touched by God. Keller wraps up this this section on these five distinctives of the early Christian social vision by saying this. The early Christian community was both offensive and attractive. I love this. But believers did not construct this community as a way to reach Roman culture. Rather, each of the five elements listed above characterized the early church because Christians sought to submit to biblical authority. They are all commands as well as implications of the gospel. And these five elements are just as category-defying, just as offensive and attractive today. The first two views on ethnic diversity and caring for the poor sound liberal. And the last two views on abortion and sexual ethics sound conservative, don't they? The third element 
being non-retaliatory sounds like no one particular party today and is commonly rejected in today's culture of outrage. Churches today are under enormous pressure to jettison the first two or the last two, but never to keep them all. Yet to give up any of them would make Christianity the handmaid of a particular program and undermine the missionary encounter. End quote. These are the things that made the church peculiar, and they will make us peculiar today when you can't be tagged as either right or left, and you don't bite back the way that both of those parties do. Then you become something other, something different, something compelling, something good. Abstain from evil desires which wage war on your souls. Rather, live such good lives among the pagans. Don't live lives like the pagans to fit in with them. Rather, live such good lives among the pagans, side by side, mixing it up with the pagans. Christianity is not in vogue today. We aren't being killed here in America for our faith, but there is some social pressure to to not be Christian or at least to not live like it. But to not acquiesce to the culture will bring about questions. And we must live in a way that requires an explanation just as they did. Questions like, why do you live like that? Why are you not mean back to the people who are talking bad about you? Why do you graciously answer critics? Why are you so patient? Why are you slow to anger? Why aren't you vulgar? You're in college, you're young, why aren't you sleeping around? Or you and your girlfriend have been together for so long, why aren't you sleeping together? How can you be critical of both parties at once? Shouldn't you just be one or the other? What do you mean you give your money to help people? You work so hard for it. Live in a way that raises questions. And it's not just ethical stances that you take. It's not even just good behavior that you live out. It's not just behaving well. It's not just being charitable. It's not just giving to all in need, though all those things are good and a part of it. It's not just your behavior either. It's joy. It's your joy. Do you have a joy that can only come from Jesus? In 2005 or 2006, I worked a very minimum wage high school sort of job washing dishes. Um, I made some friends there, uh, and one was a couple years older than me, and he was in college. I was still in high school at this point, and um, it's weird because we're friends still today, and neither of us remember at what point we became friends or how it is that he got, he got my phone number. Um, he was he was much cooler than I was, arguably, college football player, older, just in general, probably higher on the social ladder than I was. I am way cooler now, to be fair. Um, he's an old man. I'm not. I was still in high school. He was in college. But our worlds, they collided regularly as he brought dishes back to my little dishwasher space, and we would talk about sports and whatever. Uh, he likes Ohio State. I wonder how he's doing this morning. Anyways, um, so <laughs> please don't leave. One Sunday morning, I woke up to go to church, and I flipped open my flip phone. Some of you remember. Uh, I flipped open my flip phone, and uh, I had a voicemail. And it was from this friend, my college age, much cooler friend. And he was, you know, as I listened to his voicemail, he was uh, a little inebriated, I would have guessed, uh, but not like out of his mind or anything, you know. And he was, he was crying a little bit, it sounded like, from what I could hear. Uh, and... Um, 
he was essentially just saying, I have no idea. I have no idea what it is, um, what it is about you. He said, but, but you seem way happier than me. And you seem way more joyful than me. And you seem like you have way more peace than me. And, and I just want to know if we could talk about that so I could figure out why that is. Call me back. We hung up. And so we did. We, t- we talked about it. And honestly, it was a conversation that changed his life forever. I wish I remembered more of it. Honestly, the details are, are almost not even fuzzy. I don't really have any details. But I, I know that I told him that it was Jesus that changed my life. That the only reason I had this peace that I have, it's, it's Jesus. And the only reason I'm, I'm as happy as I seem to be to you is Jesus. All of it, it's, just, it's Jesus. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sure that's pretty much the gist of what, I've said, what I said to him. I, it was probably very imperfect. Uh, probably wasn't how I would say it now exactly, but it was, it was the best I could do back then. And he started coming to church with me. He started playing softball with my church on Sunday afternoons. And we would talk about God. And then I got to college and we would we'd go to my church in the morning and then we'd go to my house and hang out for an hour and then we'd play softball because it was summertime and we'd play two games of softball. Then we'd shower. And then we'd drive to my college church at night. And we'd talk about God and what it meant to follow Jesus. And again, I, I would probably now have some pointers for 17, 18, 19-year-old me if I could go back in time. But here's the thing. The guy from that story... He's still following Jesus. He's still praying. He's still opening the Bible. He's still asking what it looks like to follow Jesus as a parent and a husband and a friend and a son and a brother. He's still a Jesus follower right now. He's actually at church somewhere right now. Not here for some reason. It's messed up. But somewhere he's at church worshiping a Jesus that I got to introduce him to almost two decades ago. And I know him well. He evangelizes. He shares the gospel. Live such good lives among your coworkers. Live such good lives among cultural Christians that we talked about a few weeks ago. Live such good lives among secular, post-Christian liberals who dislike the faith for one reason or another. Live such good lives among the conservatives for whom God is just a, a campaign strategy. Live such good lives among the actual pagans, if you know some. Live such good lives among whoever it is you are living your life among, your friends and family. Live such good lives among those people that it raises some questions. Be so joyful in the Lord that they wonder, why are you so happy? Why are you so at peace? Why do you seem so full? And I oftentimes feel sad and empty and anxious. Why? And yes, trust me, I know that that's not like the static experience of Christians. I've felt very much sad and anxious and empty too at times. But for the Christian, we know where to run with those things. A chapter earlier from what we read this morning in 1 Peter 3 tells his audience this. But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. But do not be terrified of them or be shaken. But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience, so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ might be put to shame when they accuse you. Be ready to give an answer for the hope you have. And it's Jesus. Live lives that make them ask the question, why are you like that? 
and then have an answer. It's Jesus. Falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi is this quote, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. This is not something St. Francis said. This is St. Francis is a man who preached to animals. He, so he wasn't shy about opening his mouth to Jesus, about Jesus. In fact, if there was no person around, he was still going to preach the gospel with words. You will have to use words to preach the gospel. You will have to use words to preach the gospel. But words fall short when your life doesn't mirror the gospel. So live good news. Don't just talk about it. You have to absolutely be about it. Whether you're Perpetua who had to refuse to deny Christ at the great cost of her own life, whether you're just an adult in 2023 living in a post-Christian society, maintaining those five facets of the Christian social vision that we talked about a little while ago this morning, whether like me in my story earlier, you're a student working a minimum wage job and going to school, you get to perform the gospel with your whole life. A joyful self-sacrificial, just, good, loving, kind, moral, beautiful life, all done in gratitude to God for what he has done for you in the person of Christ. And not only that, but you have a mouth to speak, to speak with, to tell a story and to tell about a Jesus that died for you, to, to share a good news about that with the world. Don't squander the opportunity. Don't neglect the greatest privilege in the world. I really hope that these past six weeks have given you a greater understanding of what the gospel is, as well as some tangible ways to share the good news with different kinds of people. People from different walks of life, different ways of thinking than you. I hope that if you didn't previously feel any desire to share the gospel, to share the good news about Jesus, to tell somebody about him, I hope that you do now. I hope that if you previously felt that desire to share the good news, but didn't feel like you could, didn't feel like, like that was ever on the table for you, that you could ever open your mouth to do that, I, I pray that there's a bit of holy boldness building up inside of you where, where you begin to say, not only do I want to share the gospel, but I think I can share the gospel. Just like my friend I mentioned earlier, your friends and family and neighbors and coworkers, they can all find new life in Jesus Christ. It's totally possible. You could be thinking 20 years in the future. You could be thinking back about how this person was lost and now they're found. They were dead, but they were brought to new life in Christ. Now they're still following him today. That could be your story too. It might just be that God has been waiting to use you to make that happen. Michelle, you can come up. As we close this morning and take communion, I really just don't want to let you leave here today without considering this call on your life as a Christian to share the gospel. You might not think about it often in your normal life, but for six weeks we've forced you to at least examine this idea here. What has God been asking you to do who is he moving you to talk to this morning? If there's anything hindering you from moving forward in that, I want you to ask him to help you today. I want him, you to ask him to help you move past it. If you need someone to pray for you this morning, to, to kind of 
maybe pray for you so that you might have the boldness or the opportunity to share the gospel with a certain person. My friend Randy's going to be available to pray for you. He'll be standing over here. Our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and after he broke it, he gave thanks saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, again giving thanks. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We take communion at the table each week by taking the bread and, and dipping it in the cup and remembering Jesus and how he gave his life for us. Communion is available in the back uh, to my left, gluten-free communion uh, in the back to my right. Uh, you can just sit here in this moment and take some time, spend some quiet time with the Lord. Um, pray, and then when your heart is ready, you can stand and take communion on your own. Let's pray. Father, um, I trust that the past six weeks here have been uh, orchestrated by you, that you've had things to say to people, that you've um, been moving people along uh, to, to share your gospel that you've been readying their hearts to do it. And God, I pray that there are people here that maybe going to take a first step to, to share the good news about your son, Jesus. I pray for people here who might feel timid, who might feel like they just still can't quite bring themselves to do that, that you'd give them boldness, that you'd give them joy, that you would, you would become something in their hearts that they can't shut up about. God, I pray for the people who you are preparing this church to share the gospel with, that you would ready their hearts to, to hear and receive the good news. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.